Welcome to Time to Show Up, the podcast and community that supports you to flourish and grow in your personal and professional life. There's no better time to show up than now. Today we are speaking with Lisa Marciano, a licensed clinical social worker, certified Jungian psychoanalyst, and a prolific writer specializing in psychology and culture. With a rich background in depth psychology, she brings a unique perspective to her work, integrating Jungian theories into contemporary therapeutic practices. As a respected clinician, author, and co-host of the popular podcast, This Jungian Life, Lisa contributes valuable insights into the intersection of psychology, culture, and personal growth. She's just published a brand new book called The Vital Spark. In this episode, we discuss things like the slow burn of realizing a calling in midlife, advocating for the public understanding of depth psychology, and wisdom over quick successes. We also talk about how to find one's voice, expressing that voice through writing, holding paradox, and taking risks. We hope you very much enjoy this interview. Elisa, thank you so much for joining us today on Time to Show Up. Um, I've been really looking forward to this for quite some time. <laughs> big fans of your podcast. <laughs> and if you haven't listened to the podcast and you're watching now, this Jungian life is just a jewel. It is an absolute thank jewel. Thank so you. check it out. Um, but let's start talking about, <laughs> about you. If you were able to say something about yourself to someone who's never met you before, about who you are, what would you say? Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess, do you want the resume version? However you want to play it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a Jungian analyst. I've been a Jungian analyst for uh, about 12 years. I graduated about 12 or 13 years ago. And uh, I'm a psychotherapist, a licensed clinical social worker here in the United States, and an, an author. I've, um, my second book is coming out in uh, February. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I have a podcast and those things are all kind of tied together and, and interrelated, actually. And the book, I've got to ask you to plug the name of your book, because it's a very interesting one. So uh, my my first book was called Motherhood Facing and Finding Yourself. And it was a book about how motherhood can be an opportunity for personal growth. My next book is called The Vital Spark. Reclaim your outlaw energies and find your feminine fire. Oh wow! And uh, it's published by Sounds True. <laughs> you know, I'm really excited about it. I actually can't wait till the book is out in the world. Um, it's uh, it's about well, and this is this is you know, I guess all books are kind of autobiographical. <laughs> so uh, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but it, it's really about um, women. Uh, kind of leaning into their authority and agency. Mm. That is what the book is about. I am very excited to I read that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got uh, Natalie for her birthday, the w Women Who Run With the Wolves, and she's like, I have, I've got that one already. <laughs> it was a, it was a double book. down, but I think sort of some uh, young, young based. Yes. Um, Female fierceness, I think it's very... Female uh, fierceness. Yeah. I love yes. that territory. Yeah. Some female fierceness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. That's good. good stuff. Very good okay, job. well, now that we've got the um, the resume version, I'm going to go straight in with the, the more shrink-oriented questions. <laughs> and well, a shrink-oriented okay. question anyway. Um, and you can meander and choose your, choose your opportunity here. But I wonder if you could tell us um, an important formative experience for you, a key moment that you think 
has really strongly shaped who you've become today? I know it's a big ask and there's probably many to choose from, but mm-hmm. where might your mind mm-hmm. go? Yeah, there, there, there are, there are many to choose from, I suppose. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, okay. How about this one? Mm-hmm. I didn't know I was going to say this, but I think I'll say this. I, at some point I asked my mother, you know, how did people, you know, how, how were people create, where did people come from or something? <laughs> you know, where does all this come from? You know, I was probably like three or four or something. And my mother said, well, God made people. And then I said, who made God? And she said, people made God. Huh. And I, I think I do actually remember the conversation, but I also remember talking about it with my mother later and what I love about her answer is she was okay with letting there be paradox. Mm-hmm. And somehow as a four-year-old or whatever, I like I knew that that was, you know, it didn't really answer the question and yet it somehow did. Mm-hmm. Like at somehow in my child brain even, I got that this was an unanswerable question and could only be answered with a paradox. Wow. And, uh, and I, and I think that my mother kind of continually modeled that for me in a way that wasn't even conscious. It's just kind of who she was. Mm-hmm. And it really shaped, I think, who I became is that, that kind of, um, way of engaging with the world. So would you, would you say that, that, that thread to who you are now, I mean, for me, it obviously speaks about the paradoxes that people sit with as as analysts. But um, this this uh, is that link a kind of a, a, an openness to paradox. Would you say? Well, an openness to paradox, but also because I think you need to have an openness to parano- paradox to kind of question more deeply. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, the thing is, my my mother. I mean, those are those are the kinds of questions that kids asked, right? And and parents could just provide very pat answers to that. And that would sort of shut it down. But in a way, by giving me a paradox, it was an invitation to keep thinking about it. And, and sort of that maybe the most important thing there was to think about it rather than to come up with an answer. Mm-hmm. So may, and maybe what I'm saying is I think my mother in a very, again, not purposeful way encouraged me to have to develop a a symbolic or even dare I say a kind of a spiritual attitude. Hmm. I I think I think that, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't decide to become a therapist, I decided to become a Jungian analyst, and I would never have decided to become a therapist, I was only interested in becoming a Jungian analyst. So I I think that uh, the thing about a, being a Jungian analyst rather than a therapist, and I do, I do love being a therapist now. <laughs> but the the Jungian part about it is really about um, psycho spiritual meaning, mm. and I I think I was primed through my relationship with my mother to have a comfortable relationship with that part of life. I love that. That's so mm. exciting. Just the the possibility that you could be offered an opening into that at such a young age, which invited greater questioning, approach, curiosity, discovery, is is extraordinary. Um, And I think quite, at least from people I know, quite exceptional. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Um, so what has been one of the most surprising or un- unexpected things about your life course to date? Hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, um, I, I guess one of, one of the things maybe that's, that was a surprise is, um, you know, I'm a pretty agreeable person. I think, I think that tracks with being a therapist, you know, it's like you, you like people, you want people to like you, you know, most therapists are not really strong in the kind of confrontation department. Mm. And I, I really, I really hate confrontation. I've gotten better at it and I still just hate it. You know, it just like sits in my body when I have to do it. And I just, ugh, you know, at least now I can do it. I used to just avoid it. But, you know, I mean, that's an important skill in life. Mm. It's an important skill as an analyst. Sometimes you have to confront people. It's still kind of not my strong suit. But the interesting thing is that um, a number of years ago, I became concerned about what I saw happening in the treatment of young people with gender dysphoria. And I did more research and I took a lot of time kind of going in that direction. And I, I felt so strongly that what I was seeing was um, ethically questionable mm-hmm. that I felt like I had to um, just begin to kind of speak about it. So I did some writing about it. I've, I've written a couple of peer reviewed uh, um uh, articles about it. Um, and I mean, in there is no, if you hate confrontation, there is no worse place to put yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I, I sometimes still look at that and I'm like, how did I wind up there? You know, mm-hmm. so that, 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 that surprises me. And I didn't see that coming. I wasn't looking for an opportunity to get in the middle of some big conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it just it it happened and uh, and here we are. So w- would you say that the surprise that the surprising thing was the reaction that you weren't expected weren't expecting, or that the surprising thing is that you found yourself kind of in that that you maybe you did know that it would provoke that kind of ex- that reaction, and as a non confrontation, oh, no, I, kn- I knew, I knew, you knew the surprising things that you put that yourself there. Be, anyway. I knew, right? Yes, yes, okay, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, we may come back to that later. Let's see how let's see how we go. Um, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And maybe this is maybe this tracks actually. Considering yes. you were just talking about that um, <laughs> about um, agreeableness and confrontation, um, but and maybe this is maybe your answer to this question will change since then. Um, but what do you think are the main differences between how people perceive you and how you perceive yourself? Uh, it is kind of related. I mean, I I am always well. So, so some of my close associates have kind of reflected back to me, for example, Joseph on the podcast, he mm-hmm. once said to me, you know, that I came across as, you know, this incredibly confident, powerful, you know, a uh, hundred, hundred tons of bricks, you know, so I'm like, <laughs> really, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I guess at least some people see me as formidable, which is not really how I experience myself. And and I think, you know, I, I have a friend that I think that that's probably true for her too, that, that she can, like any of us, she can feel insecure and unsure of herself at time or a little bit bashful, but she comes across like a powerhouse. And I think that it can kind of get her in trouble because just like, I think it can kind of get me in trouble because it's like, if you, if you're not quite sure of how you're coming across, you're not quite sure of your own power in a way. 
then you don't understand the reaction that you might be provoking in other people. Mm. So um, I don't know that that's fixed for me, but um, yeah, I, I, I could use some work there. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, because the, the, the gap between uh, the self-experience of maybe being quite vulnerable or agreeable and not a bulldozer and being experienced as someone who can be means that people treat you as the latter rather than the former, right? So you're, you're extra exposed. To mm-hmm. Okay. So this is that, that, that forms our kind of introductory session <laughs> to get a taste, a taste of uh, Lisa Marciano. And the second part is kind of based on one of my favorite quotes, which comes from Hillel, um, which is, I get up, I walk, I fall down all the while I keep dancing. Mm-hmm. And we kind of know that's an aiming high quote. That's not <laughs> the expectation is is not that uh, we really can necessarily keep dancing when we're walking and falling down and getting up, but kind of using that as an anchor point. Can you tell us about a time that you've fallen down and how you got up mm-hmm. and carried on walking mm-hmm. and maybe whether or not there was dancing involved or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. A break dancing on the side. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, maybe, maybe the story to tell is around um, the publication of my first book. So I, um, you know, I was one of these people that since I probably learned to read, I was like, some part of me was like, I'm gonna write a book someday, you know, and I've always like, (laughs) you know, I've had a couple of manuscripts of one kind or another throughout my life. So this was always really, a, uh, I would say, kind of like a dream, a life dream to be, you know, to write a book. And it was one that um, really felt, uh, y- you know, re- like way, way over the moon. Like maybe some people get to do that, but it would, it would be really, it, w- it would be amazing if I could do that, but like not very likely that that's going to happen, you know. But even though it felt um, like it was out of reach, it never went away. And then I had this idea when my when my um, kids were little. My my son was like just a few months old, and my daughter was two. So it's really a hard time. <laughs> and I was, you know, it was like December, and it was bitter cold outside, and it was like eight o'clock in the morning, but they'd both been up since like 4.30 or something ridiculous like that. And I was already exhausted, but it was only eight o'clock. And I was like, oh, how am I going to get through the day? So I put them in the stroller and just got out of the house just to like get out of the house. And I'm pushing the stroller and it's it's so cold and the stroller's getting caught on tree limbs. And it's just, you know, it's like the baton death march, you know, and um. And I, and I just thought to myself, God, everything about being a mother is so hard. Mm. And then this voice came up and said, yes, but I'm, I'm growing a lot as a result. And I was in analytic training at that point. So of course, you know, thinking a lot about Jung's ideas and the idea of individuation. And I, it, it, grabbed me. I was like, this is an individual, this is individuation. This is an individuation opportunity, all of this. And I was like, really excited by that thought. And I was like, okay, I've got to go read that book. So when the kids, you know, went down for their nap later, I like got online and I was like looking for that book. And I was like, no one's written that book. (laughs) So it's not like at the moment I said, I'm going to write that book. But I was like, well, this is a really interesting idea. And I, I'm curious about it for myself. And I'm curious about it for the women that I work with. And 
And in analytic training, you have to write a thesis, which is, you know, it's about like 120 pages or something. I was like, I'm going to write my thesis on that. So I sat with this idea, right? My, my son is, you know, a few months old, my daughter's two. I'm sitting with this idea. I'm thinking about it. I start reading, I start reading kind of related books. Um, you know, I'm taking notes. I'm, it's just living with me. I write my thesis on it. That, that was a great experience. It was really well received. I'm like, I have more to say on this. I think I want to turn it into a book when I graduate. So as soon as I finished analytic training, I like how to write a nonfiction book proposal. (laughs) You know, I kind of sauntered off down that road and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, as you might imagine, harder than I thought. So I, I, you know, started querying and this one agent was kind enough to write back and say, look, this is, um, a really interesting idea, but you you don't you don't have a really clear central idea here, and and so I, you know I'm going to pass. So I I took that to heart. I knew that was good criticism, good a good critique, and I kind of tabled my querying. And um, so at this point, this is probably like 2012. Okay, so the idea occurs to me in 2004. I write my thesis on it in 2011, 2010, something like that. This is now 2012, and I've decided to not query anymore because I, I need to go back to the drawing board. So at this point, my kids are like um, 10 and 8 or something like that. I'm like smack in the middle of like middle childhood. I'm homeschooling. Oh. There's chess. There's choir. There's all kinds of stuff. I have a practice. I'm building my practice. There's not a lot of time to work on the book. Um, there's not a lot of space. You know, it's you know, it's like we're we're a family. You know, my husband has a job. We have a house. We have kids. I have I have parents. My mom's ill at this point. Um, you know, it's it's not like there's lots of room to spend time doing something that pretty much has no chance of being economically <laughs> remunerative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically, it's like this hobby that I have, right? To have this fantasy about publishing this book. And and so it kind of languishes. I don't put it aside altogether. You know, ostensibly, I'm still working on it, but I feel really stuck. Um, I'm, I'm writing some. I'm also kind of... Um, getting a hold of the fact that you have to have a platform as a non nonfiction writer. And this is like, I'm, I've never published anything. I don't have any social media presence at all. Um, I don't even know how to relate to that world. I've never had any interest in that world, but I'm hearing that if I want to achieve this lifelong dream, I have to do this thing that I don't, that I'm not interested in and is really daunting. And anyway, all of that. I mean, I'm not even on Facebook at this point. (laughs) So um, (laughs) can you imagine not being on Facebook? Now Um, again. (laughs) (laughs) So then, so, so it kind of languishes, but, and occasionally I would sort of check in with myself and say like, do I want to just let this go? Do I just want to let this go? And I would sit with that question. I'd sort of let that question drop and to see what would come back. And what would come back is, no, I don't want to let it drop. So I had this, um, 
I kind of felt, you know, so this is the, you know, this is the stumbling, right? Is that it's kind of going nowhere. There's there, I'm I'm just gonna be honest, it's not like there was anyone behind me going, God, you've got to do that, Lisa. <laughs> you've got to do that. It's such a good no one was doing that. You know, my husband was like, Could you please get to the dishes in the sink? You know, I mean, you know, there there was there was just not a lot of impetus. The only energy behind it was coming from within. <laughs> and uh, you know, and it, it and it there was nothing practical about it, but it just felt really important. So um I I just said, I just said, you know, okay, I've just got to really make a commitment to do this. And um I kind of had a plan. My first choice was to get it published, you know, as a trade book. My second choice was to get it published by one of the small publishing houses, like Inner City Books, that publishes books by Jungian analysts, which would have, like, Inner City Books is, like, amazing. I would have been happy with that. But they don't tend to get very widely distributed. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to write a book for mothers, you know, I wanted, I wanted the right people to read the book and it wasn't, it, it, it's not, I'm not like a big, I'm going to change Jungian theory person. I'm just not that smart. I wanted to write a book. I felt like I had something to offer to mothers who were struggling with their role as mother and that this could be real medicine for them. So it really felt kind of mission driven but anyway, but that was my second choice. And then the third choice was, well, I'll self-publish. I just I need to make a commitment to this project and just say, I'm gonna get it out there, even if I just have to self-publish it. So um that was that was kind of the, I guess, the 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 stumbling. Um and and the the dancing was just being able to listen in that this really mattered and uh not not give up on it. That's really beautiful. So talking about motherhood as individuation and individuation sort of bringing a different perhaps a folkloric frame to it is also potentially initiation. I think motherhood is one of the greatest initiations mm -hmm. that a person can, can experience. Um, have there been times where you fell and you didn't think you would find your way back to your feet? Um, and what happened if that was the case, if there were points in your life where that happened for you? I mean, I would say that there were, um, I don't, I don't know that I ever thought I won't find my way back to my feet, but there were times of real suffering. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, um, I suppose all these things kind of, you know, link together as a thread. I, I, um, when I was in my twenties, I was working, uh, in the field of international humanitarian assistance. And I thought that that was, you know, just the greatest thing ever. I was so excited. I thought I was so lucky to have the, to work in this field. And um, I thought it was my forever career. And then I moved, I had been work, working in DC. I moved to Manhattan to attend uh, graduate school. I was getting a graduate degree in uh, international uh, and public affairs at uh, Columbia. And that coincided with um the end of an important relationship. So I thought this relationship was going to go the distance. I thought I had my whole life figured out. I thought I had my career and I'm getting a graduate degree in that field. And I've got, you know, this guy and we're going to get married and this is, you know, this is sort of it. And, you know, the, the truth is that um, the, the move from DC had felt really disruptive. If I'm being honest with myself, I'd been having 
I would say, career questions since even before. And then the relationship ended and it was like, I couldn't pretend like everything was in the place that it needed to be. And I, I, I got, I, I got, I mean, I, I want to say I got really depressed, but I'm stumbling over those words because I think that, you know, what does that mean, right? When someone comes into our office and says, I'm depressed, like the first thing I say is, well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, I don't say it like that. I say, well, <laughs> tell me, what is that like for you? <laughs> because it can mean a thousand different things. And, you know, yeah, there's the DSM criteria, and I certainly met some of them, but it really did feel like a, I want to say like a crisis of meaning or, or something. I mean, I didn't have this language at the time, but I was 28. Mm -hmm. And I, for, I forget the first person who said to me, oh, Saturn return. <laughs> what? What's that? You know, I didn't know anything about astrology. But the thinking that when you're 28, it's this kind of pivotal time. And now I see this again and again and again. I mean, I also think about it as, if you want to not refer to it in astrological terms, you can think about it as the age 30 transition. But I now see that that's a, that's a big thing for people, right? And it's something like, if you're lucky, you have this sort of recognition that, um, oh, I don't stay young forever, Around around that age, it's sort of like, oh yeah, this is sort of the 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 end of endless possibility kind of feeling. I mean, maybe not quite, but the first inkling of that, and you know, sort of like, oh, I guess I better kind of, oh, if there's something I want to do, maybe I better start doing it, kind of feeling. So I think that 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 you know, it was yeah, it was triggered by the guy, but I think it was actually much much deeper than that. And, um, you, you know, so, so in some ways, though, it, it was, it was, I would say the darkest things ever got for me was probably in that period. Mm. Um, so did I feel like I wasn't going to find my way? No, you know, probably not. Because I, you know, I had, I had friends, I had family, I had parents who loved me, you know, I, but, but it was, it was, it was a really, really dark time. And, um, yeah, and it was, it was, it was also transformational as, as mm -hmm. crises of meaning can be, because, um, it was at the darkest moment. I know this, this sounds a little Hollywood, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, not really, <laughs> this is not really that interesting, <laughs> but there, there was one day in particular when I sort of couldn't hold it at bay anymore. And I, and I woke up and I sort of tried to do all of the, it's funny, I was just rereading my journal entries from this day. So this is very mm -hmm. fresh in my mind. I, um, I was trying, it was March and, you know, so like March in New York, you know, it's like, it was still snowy and cold and mm -hmm. just, ugh, you know, spring was maybe just beginning, but it, it was not, it wasn't a nice, it, the weather wasn't nice. And I tried to do all of the things, right? So I like, took my my reading for graduate school to the cafe and I had a cup of coffee at the cafe <laughs> and you know th that didn't perk me up I tried I called all of my friends and I was like um are you free today because I could feel myself slipping in a really dark place everyone was busy there was you know I was like alone I I forget what I was gonna do that day but I, like I knew I wasn't gonna be able to do it because I was just too depressed mm -hmm. <clears throat> And I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I walked over to Broadway and, you know, went to the fairway there, you know, to, let me buy some beautiful vegetables. It didn't work. 
And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go running. I'm going to go running. I was a jogger. So like going, you know, and I was going jogging in Central Park. I mean, what's better than that? I could do it. I just, I just sat down on a bench and started weeping, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is really bad. So, um, there was a bookstore on Columbus Avenue. <clears throat> um, it was a, an independent bookstore. And, and throughout that year I had, I had, I love bookstores. I love wandering into bookstores. Mm-hmm. Right. So throughout that year, I would occasionally go to that bookstore just to browse. And I would, I wasn't, I remember I was getting an, a master's degree in international affairs but I would go down to the psychology section or this like, <laughs> like psychology self-help section and look at the titles. And there was this one book called On the Way to the Wedding. And the title struck me because this, this I thought I was on the way to the wedding, but then I wasn't. So I picked the book up off the shelf and opened it to a random page and started reading and started to cry. Oh. And then I was like... I have 400 pages of reading to do for my interla- international law class. I cannot buy this book and I put it back on the, on the, in, on the shelf. So that had happened probably at least like four times throughout the preceding months. So this, this bad day in March, I went back to the bookstore, went back to the psychology self-help section. I saw that book again. I picked it up. I opened it to a random page. I started to cry. I put it back on the shelf. <laughs> wow. Then... I was going back to my apartment and I crossed Columbus Avenue and there was a little new age gift shop called the hero's journey. I kid you not <laughs> And in this new age, <laughs> in right. this new age gift shop, they sold like incense and tarot cards and like those native mm-hmm. American dream catchers. And they sold like seven books at the back of the shop. It wasn't a bookstore on the way to the wedding was one of the books funny so even though i hadn't read jung at that time like i knew like this is the universe telling me i have to buy this book (laughs) like this is just this this is too much so i bought the book and i took it back to my apartment and it was a signed copy no way and the book was by linda leonard who's a jungian analyst i i didn't know i mean i i knew who jung was which is another story that maybe we'll get to in a minute but I wasn't interested in Jung. I'd never read Jung. I'd never been in. I'd never, it wasn't, that wasn't the draw, right? It was just the book. And as soon as I started reading that book, it was like soul balm. Because mm-hmm. she was describing the suffering that I was experiencing and giving me words for it and putting it in a meaningful context. And Linda's book takes fairy tales and films, and clinical vignettes, and personal stories, and explores the meaning of looking for a, a, a love partner. Mm. Well, if, if you've read my book, <laughs> that will sound very familiar, because sh- that book was my model for motherhood. I mean, very openly, I was, I was, you know, when, what was it, like 20 years later that I was writing it more, I was still, you know, that pattern of a fairy tale and a story and a film. And here it is. And it's someone showing up in a famous person's life, a bi- bit of biography. Um, so um, that book just opened up a whole world for me. And it, it changed my relationship with my suffering. It didn't stop the suffering, but it changed the relationship with it. So Jung says, 
We don't solve our problems. We grow larger than them. Mm. And that book gave me a way to relate to my suffering in a larger way. That really brings us into <laughs> kind of the direction that we want to go with you, which is actually about, you know, how, how from the experiences from when we've fallen down and picked ourselves up, we develop um, a better way of dealing with those challenges, maybe a structure with which to think about those challenges that we didn't have. Like you said, you know, when you were depressed, you didn't know it was a, mm -hmm. a crisis of meaning. And I mean, in a way, you've kind of answered that question that sort of finding Jung seems to have given you the narrative and the understanding of those, those questions. And I wonder if like, if it's the Jungian, you know, you, you then obviously found your way to become a Jungian analyst, but it also sounds like that's because you got an understanding that made those things bearable. For you, that like maybe you you learned. Mm -hmm. Did you? Well, I guess the question might be: Did you learn to grow into something larger than your problems? Yeah, those next challenges that came came along, mm -hmm. it got mm -hmm. easier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, I think um, you know that is the key somehow, right? To have a to have a framework for meaning, mm -hmm. because you know, as um, you know, when suffering ceases to be suffering when it has meaning and uh and so when we can um when we when we have that framework for meaning there it makes us more resilient let's say and uh you know i mean in a way it's sort of like you guys asking me you know when 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 was your darkest hour and i'm like oh this guy broke up with me when i was 28 i mean i've had a pretty charmed life I, you know, I'm very aware of that. Um, it's, I've had sort of normal people problems and not even that many of those, if I'm going to be honest. Well, I mean, you'd be surprised how much, how much heartbreak comes up. Is that yeah. formative <laughs> thing? <laughs> you just had a conversation where actually, you know, there's something about heartbreak that mm. breaks open mm. someone for the opportunity for something to, to step yeah. in. Yeah. If, oh, if we're lucky, sometimes it breaks yeah. apart. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i i wonder then talking about the framework for meaning and, and changing the relationship to suffering um thinking about life lessons that you've learned until now what's one perhaps that you feel that you've already come to grips with that you've learned pretty well that maybe you revisited a few times and what's a life lesson that you feel still needs some some work or care and attention. You know, I think the biggest, you know, those sometimes say, "What would you say to your eighteen-year-old self or whatever?" Ah, funny you should say that. We're going to come to that <laughs> later. It's a similar kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> it's a classic and a good one. <laughs> well, I think the life lesson for me is kind of similar to that. Mm -hmm. It's like I I look back at so many times when I didn't trust myself. Mm. I mean, that is a theme again and again and again and again. Where I didn't trust myself, and it's it's sort of like, um, yeah. I mean, I I I so so at some point recently, I just a few years ago, I found this journal from my um, my freshman year of college, which I I had been looking for, but I thought it was like I thought it'd been taken to the, you know, dump at some point. But I found it. It was like it was great. So I was rereading it, and it was so interesting to meet that person again. Mm. 
And it was very moving to, to meet that person again, who, you know, was, was kind of suffering in a way and trying to figure some things out and to see how kind of earnest I was and to note that I was writing down my dreams. I had no idea I was writing down my dreams when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. There I was, I was writing down my dreams. And then, um, and then, and then I, 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 I read this thing that I had totally forgotten about, which is that I, my second semester freshman year, I took this upper level history seminar and I wrote this paper on uh, Petrarch and I remember writing the paper. I remember loving writing the paper. What I did not remember is that the professor um, acknowledged my paper as a, maybe he even read it out loud or said, you know, this was a great paper and Mm -hmm. he acknowledged me in front of the class. So this was an upper level seminar and I was a freshman and, um, you know, I, I, I'm sure it tickled me at the time. Of course it did. <laughs> but what it, what happened to me when I reread this a few years ago was shit right there, there was the evidence, right? Like I, I had, by the time I reread this, I had sold my book Wow! and I was like, there it was like you, you were, you were a good, a really good mm-hmm. writer, Lisa, back then when you were 19 years old, mm-hmm. but I didn't let myself know that, but I had all the evidence I needed. I mean, it's not like that was the only data point, but, but that one in particular kind of was, you know, kind of shocked me a little mm-hmm. bit, you know? Um, but why, why did, why didn't I say to myself, well, I know I can write a book. Why did it take me? I mean, I, I was in my fifties. <laughs> I was in my fifties when I sold that book. Why, what, why couldn't I have had a little more, I mean, you know, arguably I didn't have anything to say until then, which is really possible. Well, clearly not though, right? But I, because... but I also didn't really believe it. <laughs> yeah. Because you, you said in this very interview, right, that you're pushing your, your stroller down the cold New York street with these little babies and had something to say. That was what you said, 2002, right? Something like that. 2004. 2004. So I wonder like what, like now maybe with your framework, right? Like Mm -hmm. how do you make sense of having had something to say as this 19 year old young woman in college, having had something to say, pushing that pram down the street, living alongside whatever that other, that, that not having to say, I mean, or what would you say? What is the other side? Maybe, you know, what is the shadow side of that? The, or the other side of the ambivalence, you know, in your, in your framework, what is that other side? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, um, you know, thank God at some point I just said, no, listen, you've, I've really got to do this mm-hmm. because I, I was, I, I would get, I would have pangs of frustration that somehow I hadn't, I, I don't, I wouldn't have had the words for it. Okay. But that, that I felt like there was something I had to do mm-hmm. and, and that I hadn't managed to do it. And I hadn't managed to do it because I didn't believe in myself. And thank God I figured it out. It may have taken me until I, one of my fifties, but better now than not doing it. Because I think that, um, uh, you know, having something to do and not doing it, <laughs> you know, that is a, that, that is a setup for being um, regretful, let's yeah. say, for having regrets. Right, and I, and I suppose I do have some regrets because I, 
I wonder what I could have done if I believed in myself earlier. Yeah. I'm curious, really, I'm, I'm curious whether you had a contrary voice, as a lot of people do, right? Just in, in, the, in the normal co- conscious negative thoughts way, you know, like, actually, you don't have something to say. It doesn't feel like that's what you're saying. It's not, it's not like I have something to say, no, you don't, Lisa comes back. It feels like it's something a little bit more elusive that got in the way of you mm-hmm. feeling you could do it or, or, or start, you know, was it a matter of behavior? You know, was it a matter of starting to do it? I'm just curious about what the, that obstacle was, because it seems like the voice is also so clear. Even the voice that says, okay, pick up and do it now. There, it's almost like there's always a voice there. That makes sense. So what was the inner voice that was, that was, what was the kind of uh, originator of the doubt or what was it that held me? Yeah. That? Yeah. What, what is contrary to the voice that did know that, or what form did that take? Put it on pause. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was something like um, you're not. Yeah, I think it's something like you're, like yeah, Lisa, you're like you're 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 smart. You're you know you can you can write, but you're not that smart, and you mm-hmm. you can't write that well. Like yeah, you're 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 fine, but you, but you're not that. It, it it was very much like that, mm-hmm. like like kind of well, who do you think you are mm. that you could do that? Like that is only for really special people. Okay. I think it, I think it was something like that. So maybe even something about being allowed to take up space as an authority. Or- yeah. Yeah. Def- that, that word authority always really, um, that, that's a, that's an important word for me, I think, because I think that, um, you know, it's, it's always like, Oh, well, Sometimes still in my life, sometimes we're like, well, I think it's this, but you know, someone else says no, and I think I really think it's that. And then I'll be like, oh, okay. But then later on it's like, no, I was right, you know. So like believing, trusting my own sense of authority. Um you know, I mean, I think one of the things that that many therapists have that I definitely have that that makes me a good therapist is I can just so easily enter someone else's stance. Mm. I can see things from their side. That is a good quality in many circumstances, but it makes it hard for me to stand where I'm standing and stay there. I don't know if you describe it like this. There's something about, someone said this word to me the other day. I, I Well, I think of it in terms of permeability to someone else's reality or state or story. And this other person said it's about being porous, that if you're more porous towards people, I mean, I guess it sort of has the same ring. But when you talked earlier about um, being appreciated and called out for your early essay at age 19 um, in front of a class, uh, and it struck me from what you said, and maybe I'm misreading this, that there was this kind of, my impression was that 19-year-old you sounded like she readily accepted that on some level, that there was a recognition of, hey, I love writing. This is great. Is that is that true? Or am I just kind of projecting some fantasy that there was an ease of recognition of that quality that, that didn't have to be egotistical, but it was just like, a, oh, yeah, I wrote this and I felt passionate about it and it's great and it's being recognized and it feeling congruent somehow that it would be recognized perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's... I don't think I would have said that at the time, yeah. but when I look back at it now, I mean, writing that paper was uh, deeply pleasurable mm-hmm. and meaningful. 
Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then it, you know, I, I, I mean, now I can say like, yeah, look at that. You were good at it. You know, we tend to like things that we're good at, mm. you know, you were good at it. Other people could see you were good at it. You, you liked it, you know, but I, I couldn't, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem, I mean, in spite of the fact that I kind of went off to college and part of me is like, oh, I want to be a writer. I couldn't, I couldn't really claim that because it just, it seemed like, like, that's not a job. Well, yeah. that's not a job. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't pay anyway. <laughs> I think all three of us know that one. <laughs> but I couldn't, I just couldn't get anywhere near it in terms of saying like, yeah, this is what I, this is what I want to do. Mm. I, I'm probably going to want to come back to that, but, but I think we, we might have a lot of listeners when we have our listeners who might be aspiring writers. <laughs> I think that there is this thing about, you know, going to the bookstore and seeing that spine of a, of a book, you know, with an author on it and it just feeling like this untouchable foreign object that only, you know, writers do. It just, there's something about the aura of that. But um, to link it back to this kind of, this idea mm-hmm. of progress and understanding frameworks and learning from our past, you know, you started this interview by saying, you know, February, this new book is going to come out, or you're, you're finishing the book mm-hmm. soon anyway. Could you say something about how the, your relationship to the new book was different to your relationship from the old one? The first one, rather? Well, they were written under such different circumstances that I, you know, I had so much time to write the first book and so much time to live with those ideas. And the second book was like, I had 11 months. Well, so I basically just had to start writing. Um, so it was much more, it was much, it, the, the writing part of it was actually much more challenging with the second book, but, um, but it was also, it was also kind of fun because I, you know, I knew it was going to get published <laughs> <laughs> that, that made it a real romp. I, I enjoyed it. What about from a psych? So that's kind of feels like a strategic thing in a way you had a deadline, you had a publisher, but presumably you also had to query that publisher. That was a different Lisa right, who made that query to sound true. I guess what I'm kind of asking is, did you you get over, (laughs) did you get over that thing that was really hard for you to get over to write the the motherhood? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I did. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, listen, there was something that was really transformative for me about um, Selling the book, writing the book, and pu- the first book, and publishing the book. And, you know, I had, um, I told you guys the story about the Linda Leonard book on the way to the wedding. What I didn't tell you about that story is that I think that unconsciously I recognized when I read that book that I wanted to, um, I, I think I found a sense of mission. Mm. And my sense of mission, although I would never have been able to say this at the time, was I wanted to be able to do what Linda Leonard did for me. And, and I think about it like, I, I mean, I know this sounds crazy, but by the time I finished that book, I was like, oh my God, I wonder what it would be like to be a Jungian analyst. I mean, I was getting a (laughs) master's in international affairs, but that was where the seed was planted. And then I, I also think that when I say do what Linda Leonard did, I, I think that I, Sometimes I think my life mission, which I did not consciously pick, but which picked me, is to popularize Jung. <laughs> so when my book was published and people started writing me things like, thank you so much, this book has changed my life, mm. 
that was, I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing better. There's nothing better than feeling like I thought I had something to say that would help. And I did. I was right. So, you know, Aaron, you're sort of asking, did I get over it? It's like, well, yeah, I think I can, going back to, I think I can trust myself. I think if I feel like, you know, I've got something to say and this might help people, I can, I think I can take that to the bank now, <laughs> you know, 50 something years old. So, um, I mean, I didn't have quite as clear a sense of what I wanted to say initially in the second book, but I did, I did know that I was mining a vein um, that would, well, I should say most of the time I knew I was mining a vein that would be helpful to people. And, and some of that too is, you know, we talked about some of that stuff on the podcast and people wrote in and said, oh my God, I, this is, this was amazing. And, you know, I work with a lot of women. There's a lot of my client stories in the book too. And I can see that they're struggling with this. So I, I had data also, you know, that these topics would be meaningful to people, but, but, you know, ultimately it is a big, you know, leap. it is about trusting yourself because, you know, it's not like I, it's not like I have a lot of data. I have a little data and a, and a gut feeling that this would be helpful to people. And I think it will be. Interesting about the theme of trust. Like someone else that we were interviewing was about creativity and, and showing up and how we choose to show up and how much is persona that we project to the world and what happens if you step into your life or into a kind of let's say the spotlight with more aspects of self in you know in relationship to other people so bringing more of yourself to the to the scene and the question of trust came up then in the sense of trust in uh in the idea that if you take that leap somehow you will find ground to step onto next um and so the trust sounds like a Maybe it's kind of relationship quality that's that's developed over time. But I wonder if there's a life lesson that you think still needs attention and work where, where you could, maybe it's to do with the authority thing. Maybe it's something else that you think, ah, oh, that would be quite nice to have a little bit more progress in that area. Mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. many of those. <laughs> <It's> like a <laughs> library. So what, what am I, where, where am I still growing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um. Um, where am I still growing? Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I do think the authority thing is still there for me. That's still something that I struggle with. Um, you know, there's definitely, um, been times in the past few years where I have discovered that I had these big kind of gaping holes and it's like, Oh, I didn't know I had that big hole there. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I never things I, you know, oh boy, I didn't think I, I didn't think that was going to happen. And it, and it did, you know, didn't, I thought I was above that. <laughs> um, uh, so, I mean, one of the things that I kind of love about being uh, a therapist or an analyst is that you're never, you never get really good at it. You know, you always fuck up. <laughs> yes, that. you can. And, and I've, you know, I've screwed up a few times in, 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 the, in the past several years. And, you know, I got caught in something unconscious and, you know, didn't, didn't handle situations very well. I mean, it happens all the time, right? And I can look at that and feel some dismay that I, that I you know, still, that still happens. But then I know that in a way it, it means I'm human, <laughs> You know, that there's more of me to know, that there was something I didn't know about myself, that 
got me in, landed me in that position. Um, and how wonderful that there's still, there will always be more of me that I don't know. So when, when I, when I make a mistake like that, um, it's like, well, oh, there's another aspect of myself <laughs> I didn't know about before. I think also just being sort of con- that confrontation thing. That's yeah. Okay, what was that ahead. quote you said before about, about discovering parts of myself I didn't know about before? Growing yeah, bigger than your problems. Growing bigger than your problems. Yeah. Growing bigger than the capacity to grow bigger than your problems. It's like that it reframes something as being mm-hmm. bad at or a mm-hmm. problem or a mistake. I mean, we still make mistakes, but mm-hmm. the capacity to be bigger than them and use them, you know, to move, to move through. I, I think that seeing, seeing, viewing things like that, uh, through that lens, like, oh, this is a mistake. And, and I made a mistake and I didn't know something about myself. And this is an opportunity to know more and learn more and, um, grow bigger than my problems or, or whatever it, it is. I mean, it sounds very, it sounds kind of ridiculously Pollyanna or something. Um, but, but I really, I really do take it on board that way. And it allows me to be, um, forgiving mm-hmm. of myself, you know, I mean, not like it, not like it doesn't feel horrible to make a mistake and I don't engage in some degree of self-flagellation, but there is this place I can really find. It's like, okay, well, I'm human. I didn't know that about myself. Now I know a whole bunch more that I didn't know before. And, um, I, I can find some forgiveness for myself. And, and I think that that's actually a really great thing to model for other people, you know? So I, you know, I've, I think I've been able to help people in, in my practice who were, really badly self-flagellating. I said, well, wait a minute, what about this? Did you think about it this way? It's like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess I could, you know, just welcome to, you made a mistake, welcome to the human race. You know, it's like, isn't that lovely to know that you're human? So. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're kind of moving towards the sort of closing side of the the interview, but I want I wanted to make sure we talked about this Jungian life a little bit. Yes, that please. was very much what attracted <laughs> Natalie and I was speaking to you. And you said there'd been a couple of, um, uh, resonances that I've heard, right? Like that you knew that you didn't want to publish the first book to a niche Jungian audience that you wanted mothers to read it. Right. And same, same with the site. I wanted to popularize Jung. You said, and you've got this great podcast and I know working in a very similar field to you that it's not always a straightforward process of popularizing, getting ideas out there from things that are very nuanced, very much. And there's a lot of, there can be a lot of judgment about it. There can be, um, it's difficult to get those ideas across. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to get the public to understand that they might be interested in that in the first place, right? It's like depth psychology is kind of hard to sell. <laughs> uh, I found anyway sometimes, but I just wonder if just briefly you could tell us something about um, how that came to be. I know it's a big question because it's a lot of what you do, but sort of, you know, you and your colleagues have manifested a really great space where people can learn about these ideas and they don't have to be specialists. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Um, first of all, yeah. I really um, thank you for that sort of introduction to it. I, like I said before, I don't. I'm. I'm just not. You know. I'm just not one of these really brilliant people who's going to like write new kind of groundbreaking theoretical papers. Um, I'm so glad those people exist and I love reading their papers, but that is just not the way my brain works. And so I do think that I, I am, you know, as I do think I'm a popularizer and the people that I really admire are popularizers because I mean, 
that was one of the things when I when I read Linda Leonard or James Hollis or Clarissa Pincola Estes, you read their books and you're like, wow, they are taking really nuanced, deep ideas and making them accessible. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a, that is a wonderful service and an art form. And the thing is, it's like a pleasure to read, you know, and and combining these beautiful ideas with a pleasurable reading experience. It's like, ah, you know, it's like a warm bath at the end of the day. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we, we really did, we started the podcast. I, I had been on someone's podcast and I found myself thinking, huh, you know, I wonder what it's like to, you know, have a podcast. It just kind of got me curious. And I, I found myself sort of trying it out. Um, oh, would I want to do that? You know, that, that maybe that would be fun. Sort of, it was, that was the feeling is like, would that be a fun project? And I knew I didn't want to do it alone, you know, cause it was, it was for fun. <laughs> and, um, and so I thought about, um, doing it with, uh, Deb and Joseph and I asked them and, and if they had said, no, not really, you don't, I don't really have the energy for that. It would have gone nowhere, but they were like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So it really was like, um, God, I can't even remember that movie. It's a super old movie with a really young Mickey Rooney and a really young Judy Garland. And they say, hey, kids, let's put on a show. (laughs) It's like black. It's like a million years old. Anyway, um, so it's kind of like that. It's like, hey, yeah, let's put on a podcast. (laughs) Um, So we we explicitly did it for fun. We did take some time and think about um, what we wanted to get out of it. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think we, I think we knew that we were just going to be trying to talk to the general public about Jung's ideas in a kind of engaging way, kind of very conversational. Um, and we said, let's do it for a year and see what happens. And, you know, then, then we'll either stop or we'll keep going. And that was 2018 and we're still going and we've, hit 10 million downloads and oh my wow. gosh congratulations yeah that's amazing <laughs> i probably about one of those millions <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's interesting because you get or at least i certainly feel like in the intro you talk about this on this union life that it's three good friends and it really permeates the quality and texture of the conversation that there's this kind yeah. of shared joy of exploration especially and even in the really thorny emotionally complicated um subjects which are some of my favorite episodes it's this kind of richness that's shot through with intimacy and joy and shared play somehow um Mm -hmm. which is a really it's just a really wonderful space to step into it feels very Mm -hmm. alive Mm -hmm. um so yeah, I want to say thank you because it's just yeah, I think a, a joyful really world <laughs> for me. Yeah, and there's so much. I mean, there's there's so much content. There's so much bad psychology, Oof. you know, across the internet and across social media that it, it is a service too. And it's lovely that you can play and enjoy it, have it be intimate, and have it be real. So I think that's a real it's a accomplishment. Gift. Yeah. Mm. Should we move into our like? Yes. <laughs> what are we moving into? Okay. <laughs> Would you like to explain our uh, quick fire clothes? Sure. So we have we have what we have colloquially called a quick fire clothes, but so far it's not been that quick fire. So <laughs> let's see how we get on. Um, one thing I'd like to ask is, given that we've kind of covered vignettes of your story, how are you feeling about the conversation today? 
Uh, is there anything that's really stood out to you in terms of your recollections or a particular theme? Uh, well, I guess it feels, I mean, you, you know, in some ways remarkably coherent, you know, this theme of mm. sort of, uh, um, you know, trust yourself and all these different points along the road. And, you know, I was, I told you I was rereading mm. old journals recently um, for a different project. And there I was, um, you know, 20, 28 or something. And I wrote something like, I really want to learn to step into my authority more. And it's like, oh my God, that's what this book is about. But I just wrote, and there I was, 28-year-old saying it. So yeah, um, I guess I, I guess the theme, the themes that that come up, they're they're pretty consistent, aren't they? Which mm-hmm. is in some ways kind of boring, but in other ways kind of reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> Both and uh, quite quite narcissistically, having met us for just under 70, well, 90 minutes or something, uh, did you learn anything new about yourself in this interview? Um, yes, I mean, I think, I think that, um, it's, again, just how, uh, how the, the pieces fit together, um, all the way back to, you know, the, the early, the early story you asked me, you know, what's, what's an important experience and that it dislodged this memory of this conversation I had with my mother and it just kind of, uh, Mm. it's all of a piece. And so circling back to your um, question, which foreshadowed this question around the 18-year-old self, we want to go back Mm. eight years further and ask if you could go back and say something to 10-year-old Lisa, what might you say to her? Boy, 10, that was not easy. That wasn't easy. I was like one of those kids that got bullied and stuff. And, you know, I think I'd just say, you know, don't, don't don't listen you know don't listen to them you're 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 okay you're you're gonna be good you just gotta wait a little while (laughs) it's all gonna come out in your favor and conversely so what do you think your hard beaten at that stage 10 year old self might say to you if you were able to meet you right now and know who you've become hmm hmm if that if that person knew could saw me now and what mm. what what she would say yeah or, mm-hmm. i think she'd be amazed wow. oh. i got a little chill <laughs> i got a little bit teary <laughs> that's really lovely to hear yeah yeah that's yeah perfect. so um i mean i feel like this conversation has been replete with gems and advice in some form or another but for for folks who are listening to this who might be at points of transition themselves or wanting to make a change or step step into a different kind of life path, what piece of advice might you offer them? You know, something about just saying yes. Mm -hmm. I think that is a strength of mine that I have always, I mean, just said like, just say yes to the adventure. I mean, obviously you can't, you can't be foolish. You have to, you have to have, you know, sort of Freud's confrontation with reality but um, whether it was the podcast, I mean, it, it's not like I said, oh, I'm going to do this podcast and we're going to get this. And then that's going to, there, there was no, there wasn't like a plan. It just was this, the universe kind of offered it or whatever, you know, and it was like, well, yes, let's do it. You know, let's <laughs> do this. Um, so I, I have always been a, a kind of a person who said yes. Mm-hmm. And that can be an exhausting way to live. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um <laughs> 
but you're advising it as nonetheless. My family will tell you. <laughs> right. Well, I, but I think it, yeah, I do. It, it's sort of an embrace and, em, em, you know, embrace, embrace life, I guess. Yeah. I'll say this because I watch people, right? We all have clients and we see how they live. People who have that sense of embracing life and sort of saying yes in general, right? Um, generally have better outcomes than people who hold back. So say yes. Okay. Lisa, is there a question you wish we'd asked you and didn't? Um, or is there something that you'd like to share that you didn't get the opportunity to? I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm just sort of apropos of nothing, but I think you kind of made me think about it, Aaron, when you talked about how much bad psychology there is around on the, on the mm. internet. I did not have any idea when we started the podcast that we were going to be speaking into a certain cultural phenomenon um, in terms of uh, in terms of kind of mental health on the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I didn't I was like, oh, we're going to be an antidote to the Instagram therapists. No, mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking that. But but somehow we 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 were. I don't want to say in the right place at the right time, right? But this this kind of crazy idea that we had to put on a podcast rose up in this time when I think people really are hungry for depth, which is people used to say, oh, "How did you how did you get so big so fast?" And I was like, you know, what 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 advertising strategy did you use? I'm like, you didn't do, do anything. Mm-hmm. I think and I still think this. I think the reason that that people like the podcast is that people are hungry for meaning. And I think it's, you know, I, th- I think people like the podcast because of Jung's ideas. It's not really so much us. It's, it's really the ideas that people are listening for. And so um, maybe that's, you know, again, just, just sort of the, the sense of, um, of being mission driven, or maybe that when you say yes, you find, you find that thing that you were supposed to do. Mm. Maybe that's it. That's I love that. really nicely put. I do what I said before Natalie asked her question. I just <laughs> do want to say, please don't diminish the delivery because okay. yes, Jung has great ideas and and <laughs> and the three of you deliver it in such a way, right? So I mean it, it matters okay. and it's it is both of those things. So right. I just want to I'll take that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there are not all Union podcasts are created equal. <laughs> no. I have listened to a fair few. <laughs> um, and there's a lot. To okay. It. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, so, so you've told us about your very exciting forthcoming book coming out in February. I think it'd be lovely if you can remind us again the name and also where our listeners can find you and learn more about your work, about the podcast, and anything else mm-hmm. that you'd like to. To mm-hmm. highlight for them. Sure. So the book is called The Vital Spark, Reclaim Your Outlaw Energies and Find Your Feminine Fire. And the release date is February 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, it is available for pre-order already. Mm-hmm. Um, and my website is lisamarciano.com. And uh, the the uh, This Union Life is thisunionlife.com. And you can find me in both places. Amazing. 
Well, well, I think that was it. <laughs> thank, thank you for taking the time to show up with us. That was a really, really interesting interview. I'm really excited about this book coming out. I love the yeah, title. Me too. I'm going to be buying multiple copies for my female friends. Um, <laughs> That's very kind. <laughs> and thanks for sharing your time with us today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me to take this deep dive. We hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did. But that's not all there is to it. Wait, there's more? (laughs) Yes, there is. Be sure to tune in to our next episode where Erin and I will be diving deeper into the themes that came up in this interview. That's right. In the next episode, Natalie and I will not only discuss the salient issues that arose here, but we'll also be pointing to models, theories and practices from the world of psychology and behavioral science to help you make more sense of them so you can apply them to your own journey. And for those of you who are curious to learn even more, we have developed an online community where you'll be able to find more resources to explore and have opportunities to discuss this and other episodes with other community members in a forum and through live events and AMAs. In this, our first season of Time to Show Up, we're making all this great content freely available to the public. But next season, material from the review episodes, along with the great resources and opportunities for community members to connect, learn and grow, will only be available by subscription. And since we know that listening to material itself isn't enough to facilitate desired change, we've designed this community specifically to give you the support you need to take your learning even further. And if you join us at the start of our journey and sign up before April 5th, 2024, we're offering a no-strings three-month membership for free at timetoshowup.org. That's right. And if you choose to stay on with us, which we hope you will, we'll give you a 25% early bird discount just to say thank you. If you're tuning in after that April date, don't worry, you can still try out a free two-week membership with no obligation. There are different packages to choose from, and you can find out more and get in touch at timetoshowup.org. Thanks for tuning in. And see you for the review.